The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's new headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Tampa Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we're here with Donald Thomas, a managing director in our FAS practice to discuss common revenue recognition issues for software and technology companies. Adam, Donald, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Well, Adam, I think it's fair to say that since we're here and dedicating a full episode to this, technology companies come across some of the most significant revenue recognition challenges. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think... You know, obviously 606 just in general has been out for a number of years. So I think we're all very familiar with the ideas and concepts under 606. So, you know, all entities are applying that same five-step model that's, you know, ASC 606 introduced to us. What makes it unique to this particular industry, this particular sector is just some of the nuances and in the arrangements that we see that generate a lot of questions and complexities in navigating through each of those five steps. So. If we if we kind of take it step by step, you know, we can we can highlight some of those areas where we're seeing lots of questions or where we see some judgments that have to be made that might be more unique to this particular industry. Okay. So taking these step by step and highlighting some of those circumstances or issues that could present as problems. Yep. Um, let's start with step one in the revenue recognition model. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so just to recap, I don't wanna make this a ASC 606 uh, lecture, um, but step one is all about right identifying that contract with the customer. And so a contract is really just needed because it creates the enforceable rights and obligations of each of the parties that are privy to the contract. You know contracts especially in in this space they you know they could come in a variety of forms you know obviously the most traditional is your standard written contract but you know a lot of times there's also oral agreements or just by you know a certain entity's business practices there might be stuff that's customary for how they engage into contracts with other parties but at its core to be a contract there's kind of five elements that have to be present and so just recapping real quickly what each of those are is first there has to be an approval of the contract between the parties the contract itself has to identify what are the rights of each of the parties to that contract as it relates to the goods or services that are going to be you know, received or performed. You got to understand what those payment terms are. You know, a big one here is too, is that the contract itself has to have commercial substance. Um, and this is an important element that they introduced into the standard in order to prevent people for trying to kind of circumvent like round tripping, you know, recognizing revenue by creating contracts between parties that have no substance. And then the last one is really around just making sure that there is, you know, it's probable that you're going to collect um, substantially all the consideration that you're due in the contract. So 
meeting all five of those those aspects, you know, you'll you essentially have established a contract under the standard. You know, I think one thing that's unique also about just kind of software and technology companies is, you know, sometimes what constitutes the contract isn't necessarily just one agreement. A lot of times in these arrangements, you might see kind of a master agreement that serves over, you know, it's kind of the overarching agreement that has more of the general terms and conditions of the arrangement. And then subsequent to that, there could be, you know, additional contracts or addendums. So whether they're like purchase orders or just separate agreements that really relate to the specific goods or services that you're getting and the quantities of those, the amounts and the pricing around that. So when you have that, you just got to collectively realize that your, your contract under the standard that you're looking at, it might be comprised of multiple contracts. Okay, so helpful, Adam. But talk to me a little bit about when an arrangement doesn't actually meet the contract criteria. What does that look like? Yeah, so if you, you don't check the box on one of those five items, you essentially haven't established that you have a contract that would be under the RevRec standard. So you essentially don't apply the model itself. Um, a lot of times you may actually receive some consideration before that contract's established. So it could be just setting up a liability um, or depending on the terms of the, the consideration that you receive. So if there's components of that potentially that are non-refundable, um, you know, if certain criteria are met, then once you kind of check the box on the non-refundable component of that, you might be able to recognize the non-refundable piece itself. Okay. So Donald, you know, Adam's noted a few things around collectability. Uh, since software and technology contracts could be for multiple months or years at a time, talk to me a little bit about how one would think about assessing a multi-month, multi-year contract. So the first thing you have to, to look at is the collectability criterion. Uh, collectability is generally deemed to be about 75%. There's no bright line in the standard, but you know, going back to FAS5, collectability is about 75% likelihood. That assessment is made after you assess all concessions that you're likely to make. And, and just to illustrate this a little bit, you may have a company that enters into a 36-month contract with you. Uh, you. You look at that 36-month contract and you don't know if the out years, the, the, the 12 to 36 months are gonna be collected, but you have a high likelihood, you have a high probability you meet the, the, the collectability criterion for the first 12 months. So you would really look at that first 12 months and constrain uh, those beyond 12 months. In, in this circumstance, let's say it's a 36 month SaaS contract, you have high probability of collectability for that first 12 months, the customer pays six months in advance. We have both the ability and the intent to discontinue service in a timely manner if the customer doesn't pay. And so we have that first six months prepaid, you know, month seven to 12, we'll continue to monitor. We st still are having good collectability. Then we get to say month 13 and we, we notice that the customer isn't paying. We have both the ability and intent to discontinue service we do discontinue service and then we pursue collections. And in that case, the, the collectability criterion is deemed to have been met. Okay, so now let's discuss a little bit around contract modifications and do contract modifications impact step one of the five-step model? I'd imagine that in this industry, we can see a lot of changes to contracts being made. You, you do, you'll often see a change in the, in the scope or the price of the contract. You know, a, a vendor to a, a software and PCS arrangement may want to extend the amount of PCS. They may want to, to get more 
post-contract support. In, in general, any change to an existing contract is a modification per the guidance, and it's a modification once the companies approve the change. So we need to have some sort of certainty that the change has been made either orally or in writing based on your customary business practice. So what's the accounting impact there? How would one account for those modifications? So if, if, it, if it's not approved based on customary business practice, if your customary business practice is a signed agreement, if you have an oral agreement, then it's not likely that you're going to have a modification that you can account for. So it's gonna go back to what Adam talked about in terms of the, 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 the step one criteria. Okay, so Donald, what happens if a customer enters into a new contract at or about the same time as they terminate a similar contract? Does that modification guidance need to be followed? It really depends on what was effectively changed. Uh, and it, this is really gonna be a substance over form type evaluation. If there are insignificant changes such as delivery point, payment provisions, and payment provisions that don't impact step one, then likely not. However, if there's a change to the scope or price of the contract, then it's likely that you're gonna have a contract modification. Okay, Adam, back over to you. I think that was really helpful, but let's move along to the second step in the model. Yep. Recap what we need to be evaluating in step two for our listeners. Yeah, so step one, we've established that we've got a contract. So step two is actually digging into that contract and trying to more or less identify what are all the promised goods or services mm -hmm. that are included in that contract. And then evaluating, looking, from the looking at those promises, which ones actually qualify as what the standard calls separate performance obligations. And so it's important to establish what are your performance obligations because you know that more or less is the unit of accounting that you're gonna use for recognizing revenue and, and goes into the subsequent steps under the five-step model. You know, one thing you want to keep in mind when you're kind of doing this, you know, assessment of all the different promises, promised goods or services in the contract, if there is anything that's kind of deemed immaterial, you know, you can ignore those types of items because in some contracts, depending on how large they are, there can be numerous things and they can become a very challenging exercise to do. So it does provide the ability to ignore immaterial promises. One thing you also need to think about as you're going through those identified goods or services is is really to be a performance obligation, they have to be considered distinct goods or services in the contract itself. And there's really just two factors that you wanna think about when you're trying to decide if a good or service is distinct. And so the first one is whether or not you can benefit from that good or service on its own or in combination with other resources that the company might have. And then the second one is really thinking about whether or not that good or service is um, considered distinct within the context of the contract. So is it really separately identifiable? Does it kind of stand on its own um, within the context of the contract? So meeting both of those conditions, a, good or, you know, a promised good or service in the contract would be then considered a performance obligation. Okay, so then the question begs, what are some of the promised goods or services that we might typically see in software or technology contracts? Yeah, no, it's a good question. There's there's definitely a lot. You know, Donald's alluded to a couple of them, but you know, in a typical technology software contract, you've probably got multiple products, you've got services that are included with those products all under that single contract. So, you know, example could be you get access to some type of software license, um, but it, you know, included with that license, maybe there's some type of installation services, you know, customization services. Um, there could be certain unspecified updates to the software that you get along the contract term. 
um, or you know what what Donald alluded to, PCS, which is post contract support. So kind of that technical help desk being available to help you as you run across issues while using the license. So all of those different items could be under the same arrangement, um, which is why it makes it a bit challenging as you're navigating step two in these contracts is just trying to parse out all of these different promised goods or services to then evaluate whether or not they meet this separate performance obligation criteria. So Adam, both you and Donald continue to speak of PCS or post-contract support. Is that going to be a single performance obligation or should we be viewing this as a multiple performance obligation? No, it's a good, good question. So I guess the, the concept of post-contract support can include a number of things. Like most commonly people think about kind of the, the troubleshooting help desk. If you've got an issue going on with using the software license or whatever, you know, you can reach out and get tech support. Um, but oftentimes there's, you know, other things that are included within that kind of PCS umbrella are also these unspecified updates or upgrades to the software itself. You know, they're pushing through bug fixes or you know anytime you refresh an app on your phone right you're getting pushed new stuff that helps enhance the functionality of you know the software itself or the product itself and so if you were to like look at each of those items on their own they they most likely will meet the the criteria to be distinct on their own and so they could be viewed as separate performance obligations but the way most people think about pcs is to really combine them as a single performance obligation because each of them more or less have the same pattern of transfer, right? They're kind of over the contract term. Whenever you need PCS support, you have it available to you. Upgrades and stuff kind of, they're not, they're not scheduled, they're unspecified, so they occur throughout the contract period. So the, the way you consume those benefits as a customer is the same, and they're really kind of viewed as stand-ready obligations. So, so people generally combine it as a single performance obligation. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about stand-ready obligations, and okay. would a PCS be a stand-ready obligation? Yeah, it would be. So, like, like I said, you know, if you think about the support they're giving you, it's you know they're they're on call more or less. So whenever you got an issue, if it's under your contract period for whatever time that you've been provided this PCS, they're there to provide that to you. So stand-ready obligation from you know, from an entity side as a provider to their customers is basically saying, we will provide this service and we are equipped to provide this service whenever you need it. And so it's, it's viewed as something that would be recognized kind of over time. Okay. Now, software licenses and post-contract supports, are they always separate performance obligations? How should we be thinking about those? Generally, yes. So typically a software license is going to be kind of considered what's known as like a right to use um, intellectual property. And so it's going to be a separate performance obligation from then the post-contract support. And that's important because they do have different recognition kind of timing. So there's specific guidance as it relates to software licenses under 606, which states that right to use intellectual property is recognized at a point in time. So kind of when you have access to that software, so you recognize that revenue all up front once the customer has that. And then as we talked about with this PCS stuff, it's a kind of a stand ready obligation that's over whatever the support period is. So that's generally revenue that's then recognized over time. So it's a different timing of revenue recognition. Um, there are instances though, kind of in this space where you could have a quote unquote license um, 
that isn't recognized at a point in time, and it's more or less when the license is considered more a right to access the intellectual property versus a right to use. And what I mean by that is if you, if you think about kind of your typical like antivirus type software, um, the functionality of that antivirus software is really dependent on kind of the post-contract support that you're also getting, which is all those updates and stuff that constantly make that that antivirus software useful because they're, you know, as new threats come out or whatever needs to be re kind of reinvented or re-enhanced, you know, it's pushing that through to you to make that the functionality of the software you get usable. And so because of that, it's viewed as more of a right to access that intellectual property, which is also overtime recognition consistent with the PCS. Okay. Donald, switching back to you, what about software licenses in general? How do we think about those and the different kinds of licenses that actually exist in a software technology arrangement? So as Adam has just described, you've got right to access and right to use software. That's an attribute of the IP. Um, you, can, you can have that delivered to you, it can be term-based. So you have it for five years, or it could be a perpetual license. And the perpetual license would be yours until a new update or a new version came out and they sold you that. You could also have exclusive or non-exclusive rights. Um, the, the, the license really establishes the customer's rights to the intellectual property and, and the obligations that, uh, that, that you as the software vendor owe to the company. And you really need to determine whether an arrangement includes a license to intellectual property, particularly in arrangements that both have cloud services or SaaS and software. And people often confuse the two. Okay, so let's talk about that confusion. What's the difference actually between a software license and SaaS? Would SaaS be a right to access the IP arrangements that Adam alluded to around malware and spyware and virus protection? SaaS is not intellectual property. It doesn't follow the IP guidance, but you have very similar accounting to both SaaS and right to access software. So SaaS is typically a multi-tenant arrangement. A company has internal use software and, and that delivers a, a service to a customer. And so the customer accesses that instance of the software on the company's computers. That one software instance has processing of multiple customers' transactions, and it also stores multiple customers' data. It does have access very similar to right-to-access IP. And as I said, the, the software code for SaaS sits actually on the company server. Software actually is not delivered to you. So most SaaS is multi-tenant. There's also a single-tenant SaaS arrangement. But again, the, the software for that resides on the, on the provider's server, not on the customer's server. Okay, I keep hearing this, this term of hybrid cloud be used over and over again. Talk to me a little bit about exactly what does that mean and how should companies think about arrangements from a hybrid cloud perspective when evaluating step number two? So hybrid cloud is really when all of the functionality sits in the cloud, but there's a, 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 a small strip of software, a very thin client of software on the customer's computer, but the customer is not able to process transactions with that small piece of on-premise or on-device software. They really get all of the functionality from the cloud. And this is where the concept of transformative really comes to, to bear. You have this small, you know, this very thin client on your computer that allows you to access the cloud. And the relationship between that, you know, very thin 
very thin client, right to use IP on the computer interacts with the cloud. And that's a hybrid cloud arrangement. Now I've heard about some software arrangements that permit a user to change or alter its use of multiple products or licenses included in a licensing arrangement. Would these arrangements be a single or multiple performance obligation and how do we think about those? That's what's referred to as remix rights and they're a, they're a, they, are not a, they are not separate performance obligations, they're single performance obligations. And the remix rights really allow the customer to access a bundle of different software licenses that have already been delivered, so I'm not delivering anything new, it's already been delivered within a specific contractual amount. And so, in this case, the software was already delivered and the customer has control of, of that software. Um, it's really just an attribute of the, of the arrangement uh, of, of the software that the customer has already achieved control. So remix rights don't allow you to remix into software that has not been delivered. It's only into software that's already been delivered. They're also not rights of, of return or rights of exchange. All you're doing is, is mixing between a bundle of software that you already had control transferred subject to the amount in that license. So as companies continue to evolve and they move from on-prem servers to the cloud-based uh, servers, how should one be thinking about the accounting treatment for these transitions to cloud-based servers? It, it's really gonna depend on the specific contract and the facts and circumstances. There could be a marketing offer, it could be a material right, it could be a right of return. So with several possible scenarios, let's consider one. So the customer has on-prem software and, and wants to obtain access to the SaaS platform. If the customer in that contract agrees to pay an amount that's commensurate with the standalone selling price of the SaaS platform, then it's just a marketing offer. However, if the customer gets the, the SaaS access for free, so they have the, the IP license and in that contract they get the SaaS access for free, or at a discount that's greater than the standalone selling price for a customer in that geography, um, or for that class of customer, then this would likely be a material right. And a material right is a performance obligation because the customer is getting something in the future for an amount that they've already paid. Okay, so Donald, we talked earlier about unspecified upgrade rights being included in PCS arrangements. Are there ever promised or unspecified update or upgrade rights that we need to address? A absolutely, but they're, they're really typically much less common than an unspecified update update or upgrade. So a, a, a specified update or upgrade is either a, an explicit right to obtain software in the future, software that doesn't exist today in the future, or it can be an implicit right granted to the customer. Um, sometimes this happens when a company gives a product roadmap and that product roadmap lays out specific features that are going to be available in the future. Any promise to the customer, whether explicit or implicit, to provide something in the future is a, is a promise good. Because their promises to provide something in the future, and we obviously don't have it now, but we're able to use that product now, then it's simply not credible to say that it's not distinct. It would have to be distinct and distinct in the context of the contract, and therefore a separate performance obligation. Cool. So Donald, software vendors often provide customers the option to renew or extend the term of or to cancel a license. How do these impact considerations affect step two? So 
an option to acquire additional good or service, including options to renew or extend, may be included in the contract. It's a material right if these options provide something to the customer in the future that they would not receive had they not entered into this existing arrangement. So we want to make sure that, that we're not receiving amounts today for something we're going to deliver tomorrow. An option to renew a contract at a discounted amount, at an amount that's significantly below SSP for that class of customer or that geography would be a good example. One of the things we also should talk about is cancellation rights. If you have the ability to cancel a multi-year or multi-term contract at any time, let's say you have a three-year contract and you can cancel that contract at the end of the year with a certain amount of notice, and that's not a three-year contract, that's really a one-year contract. Okay, Adam, let's go ahead and switch some gears here to the next step in the process. Okay. What are we doing in step three? Remind our listeners. Yeah, so step three is all focused on the transaction price, which is basically the amount of consideration to which, in our case, the software vendor would be entitled to in exchange for those goods or services they're providing. And so a couple things come to mind when you're trying to think about um, transaction price that can make it a bit tricky. And those include things such as like variable consideration or any non-cash consideration, um, or if there's any payments that you're actually making to the customer as the vendor itself. So the introduction of any of those elements can, can make step three a bit trickier. Okay, remind us then again, what could be considered variable considerations in a contract? Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole list of stuff that qualifies under the general term variable consideration. So, you know, this is going to be things like your typical discounts or rebates. We've talked about price concessions that might be made, um, refunds, credits, other incentives, royalties, et cetera, that might be in the contract. The thing to keep in mind is when you have variable consideration, like it's going to introduce an element of complexity because the standard requires you more or less to estimate what portion of that variable or all of that variable consideration should be included in the transaction price. And it's all based on what they expect, you know, the software vendor in this case to be entitled to. So it requires judgment. And every time you introduce judgment into accounting, it introduces complexity. Absolutely. It's the name of the game here. So let's talk a little bit about what happens if that estimate of variable consideration actually changes and the overall transaction price then changes as a result of that. Would this be considered an accounting error if it was if it resulted in a significant reversal of revenue? How, how do we handle those? Yeah, and I, I guess I should qualify here. So when you're thinking through that estimate of variable consideration, the, you know, the standard tries to be, I guess, safeguard situations like that occurring by creating what they known as like the variable consideration constraint, which is essentially requiring entities to consider what is probable, what is the amount that's probable of that variable consideration of not resulting in a significant reversal of revenue. So anything above and beyond that you couldn't recognize. So you really have to kind of have that mindset, you know, when you're thinking through what to include in the transaction price is what is actually probable of not down the road us all of a sudden having to fix. And so because of the, it's a conservative viewpoint in the standard when you're thinking about the constraint, typically if you have a change in the variable consideration, it's usually an upward tick in revenue because 
theoretically you should have played you should have used a constraint when you were applying the original recognition. But nevertheless, if you if you have any change, you need to always look at kind of what what are the facts and circumstances around what caused that change to the variable consideration and whether or not it's a result of, hey, all of a sudden we've got, you know, we're a year later and we've got new information, new facts that are current as of now that suggest that maybe we're entitled to more. And so we've made an adjustment to that estimate, which would be a change in estimate under accounting, which is just a prospective thing. Or is it more of the, you know, the matter of, eh, we're looking back at what we originally thought and based, we either misinterpreted information we had back at day one, or something was overlooked um, that we didn't consider in our analysis and it's more of an error, um, which would then be addressed as more of an accounting error under US GAAP. Okay, so Donald, I, I know it can be common in the, this industry to provide extended payment terms to customers. How does that potentially impact the determination of the transaction price for step three? So extended payment terms aren't automatically variable consideration, but when payment terms are, are extended, there's a higher risk that the company may grant a concession to the customer. And that concession is variable consideration. As your payment terms extended, it, it's just a higher likelihood that your arrangement is going to include variable consideration. In, in evaluating the risks of concessions, one of the things you want to think about is the pace of technological change. If I've given you V1, software license V1, and I give you expended payment terms, and six months later, when that amount for V1 is, is owed, I come out with V2, there's a, there's a higher likelihood that, that I'm going to give you a concession because the customer is probably going to want the functionality of that new software. Okay, what about service level agreements or SLAs? How do they impact the transaction price? Okay, so a, an SLA is when I promise you that I'm gonna give you a, a specified level of service, whether that's a specific uptime percentage of the platform or that may be a response time. So you might purchase post-contract support, you know, silver, gold, bronze. And, and silver provides for 24-hour response, uh, gold gives you six-hour response, and let's say bronze gives you two-hour response. If I don't meet those service level agreements, then I might have to give you some money back. Some contracts provide for, for refunds or concessions, and some contracts just promise that, that that's the service level I'll provide. And so to the extent that the contract specifies that I'm going to give you a refund or a concession, then that's a variable consideration. And I'll need to estimate that variable consideration at the inception of the arrangement based on how likely I think it is that I'm going to be able to meet that uptime criteria. Okay, so Adam, we've talked about extended payment terms, we've talked about SLAs. After we've determined the transaction price, does step four share anything around what we need to do next? Does, so step four is, you know, we've got that transaction price and now it's just figuring out how we allocate that transaction price to all of our performance obligations. So in a very simple scenario, if you only have one performance obligation, you have nothing really to do here. But as we talked about in step two, often is the case with software and technology contracts is you have multiple performance obligations. So now you're trying to figure out what portion of the transaction price applies to which performance obligation because 
the importance of that is that you may have performance obligations that are recognizing revenue at different times. So you have to recognize pieces of that transaction price at different times. And so this allocation is done by really considering each performance obligations relative standalone selling price, or you'll hear people say their SSP. And the SSP is an estimate. Again, uh, best evidence of that estimate is if the company happens to sell that same good or service on a standalone basis to similar customers. You've got a great proxy for what the standalone selling price is. Um, but often as the case is, um, you know, companies will have certain promised goods or services that they don't necessarily sell alone. They may only sell them on a bundled basis, um, in which case they don't have evidence of that. And so they're having to derive that SSP by other ways. And so, Again, this is an area where it introduces more judgment, the need to estimate, which adds to complexity again. And so there's, there's a few approaches people consider when they're thinking about how they might estimate that SSP um, that the standard provides. So there's an adjusted kind of market assessment approach, kind of considering you know, competitor pricing, outside external pricing, adjusting it for different things. There's, there's a concept of looking at what it costs the company and adding a reasonable margin to that. So kind of an expected cost plus margin. And then in more limited situations where there's so much uncertainty and, you know, you've, you've tried to consider some of these other alternative methods to estimate and you can't come up to it, there's this concept of a residual approach. Okay. Now, Adam, is it common to use a range of SSPs to determine allocation, or is there another method that we need to be thinking about? Uh, in my experience, um, especially with you know lots of bundle goods or services where there's ranges of different customer types like that, you, you tend to see kind of ranges around what are reasonable standalone selling prices, and so long as something falls within that range, it's considered a, a good proxy for it. Um, so that is, that is pretty common. You know, I think the, the big question here is when the standalone selling price of something maybe falls outside that typical range and then just trying to figure out from which point in that range you actually measure um, kind of that difference there. Okay, so Adam, remind me though, can a company just defer the residual approach for estimating SSPs? How does that work? So, no. Um, again, the, the residual approach, it's available, but it's really in more limited situations. So it's, it's when it, you've got a performance obligations, so a promised good or service that there's just tons of uncertainty, it's highly variable, and you've considered these other approaches and, and, and you're not able to necessarily come up with a good standalone selling price, you would then default to, to this residual approach, which is essentially like, Okay, we've allocated transaction price to everything else based on their SSPs, and now we're, last, we're down to this final performance obligation, which we can't come up with an estimate for. So whatever's left that we haven't allocated is going to be its SSP. Um, the thing you got to think about here is, you know, the overall objective here is to make sure that you are allocating kind of an economically sound amount of the transaction price to your performance obligation. So. If you end up using the residual approach and you get to looking at what's left of the transaction price to allocate and it's nothing or it's so nominal it doesn't make sense in the context of what that performance obligation is, it, it's really pointing to that the residual approach here does not make sense and you really need to go back to some, some method of developing an SSP around that performance obligation. Okay. 
Donald, let's let's talk through some of the application considerations specific to software and tech companies. Uh, how does a company allocate the SSP of PCS in a bundled transaction? What does that look like? So the first thing you need to do is maximize the use of available evidence. In a, in a software arrangement, you're typically selling PCS renewals on, a, on an annual basis. And so there is, there is ample standalone sales of that PCS to determine the standalone selling price of the PCS. Uh, most companies will do a bell-shaped curve analysis where they will gather the data, scrub the data for extraneous elements like credits or zero sales, and then look at the, calculate the median price. And let's say that median price is 100. Then they'll look at where sales are clustered and they'll try to get a fairly tight band to where sales are clustered. And let's say it's, it's 20 to 120%. So if I, if I sell that item at 70, I'm gonna have to carve the revenue to the low end of the range, which would be 80. If I sell that component for 130, I'll have to carve revenue down to the, to the high end of the range, you're 120. So then Donald, how does a company determine when a software license bundled with PCS is highly variable? That, that's really gonna happen when you have, you know, sales at or near the same time at a broad range of prices. And you see this a lot with entrepreneurial or emerging companies. You know, I had a client recently just talk about how the salespeople had their finger on the pulse of the market. And, and the truth was the finger on the pulse of the market was trying to get traction in the market and sell it for whatever they could. Now, you, 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 you can't fault somebody for trying to get traction and, and, and get those sales. But then you get to a place where you may need to use the residual approach because you've got sales prices that are highly variable. Okay. So, Adam, let's move back to you in our final step of revenue recognition model, step five. I think the only thing it leaves on the table is the recognition of revenue. Anything else we need to point out in step number five? Yeah, so step five basically leaves us with recognizing revenue. And so revenue you know, is gonna be recognized either at a point in time or over time. And really the premise for when you recognize revenue is based on the transfer of control. And we've talked a little bit already about in software and technology arrangements, how that might work. So with software licenses, you know, when it's particularly a right to use, it's at a point in time. So you're going to have looking at when control happened, at what point in time did control happen that you actually got access to that, um, or sorry, I should say the right to use that um, software license. Um, and then we've also talked a bit about, you know, other things like PCS, which is more of kind of an overtime recognition because it's that stand ready obligation where you're getting things throughout the contract period. Um, I think one thing that's unique about um, kind of the software and technology space is in particular with software licenses is just the way customers maybe obtain those licenses these days. You know, you know, way back in the day when you wanted to buy software, you went down to a brick and mortar store and bought the software off the shelf and you had a physical copy. But if you think about today, there's instant downloads, things are, they're sending electronic keys to people in different ways. And so trying to decipher at what point in time you actually have control is probably maybe one of the more unique things that you have to think through, particularly on the license side of, of revenue recognition. Okay. So Donald, you know, let's piggyback off of that conversation. I know electronic delivery is increasingly common these days. When can revenue be recognized for software that has been delivered electronically? What does that look like? So there are a couple of different scenarios. The customer will effectively control the software 
once they electronically download the software and take possession. Secondly, if an access key is provided to use or access that software, but the access key has not been provided, if the customer has an enforceable right to obtain that key at any time, and the company can provide the key on demand, then it will still be deemed to have provided the copy because it's really a, a perfunctory remaining obligation. Okay, so that's helpful. Are there any other nuances or considerations that we need to be aware of as it relates to revenue recognition or any of these other topics? So there's an exception relating to the recognition of variable consideration for sales or usage-based royalties received in exchange for uh, IP licenses. Under that exception, royalties are recognized as the underlying sales or usage occurs, as long as that approach doesn't result in the acceleration of revenue. At the end of the reporting period, the company is required to estimate royalties. Not able to, but required. Um, consistent with allocating variable consideration. Um, again, they need to keep in mind that this exception is not an election, it's not optional, it's required. Companies need to review their contracts for any in-substance royalties promised in exchange for a license of IP. If there's an upfront payment and there's a potential to claw back, if the sales or usage doesn't occur, then that's effectively a sales or usage-based royalty. Okay. Well, gentlemen, lots we covered today around 606 revenue recognition, um, all for tech companies and software companies. Uh, lots of nuances here, but a lot of great content. I know we've got another episode coming up to discuss this further. So thank you both for being here and stay tuned for more. Absolutely. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.